Okay, let's take our Bibles and turn to the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. Our text for the morning is in chapter 14, and I want to just speak kind of briefly this morning about uh, what the Word says here. This is probably a kind of a familiar account to you. I know it is to me, but uh, I love, and you've heard me say this before, and I'm going to say it again. Every time we study the Word of God, there is something fresh. How many know that's true? Every time we come to the Word, we learn something. There is never a time if we come and say, Lord, teach me this morning. Spirit of God, show me what this passage has to say. There will never be a time where the Spirit of God doesn't answer that prayer and says, well, I'm not going to teach you anything or you're not going to learn anything new. There's always something fresh, always something to be discovered and always some kind of deeper layer of truth and deeper layer of application that we need to hear. I have really seen this text in a very new way uh, in the last 48 hours. I, I kind of mentioned it uh, in passing in VBS to the kids on Friday morning, not planning to talk about it, and it has stuck in my head ever since. And the more uh, I studied it and the more I kind of uh, dove into the text, the more the Spirit really led me to a greater understanding of Peter's motivations and, and the spiritual principles that this morning will speak directly into our lives great challenge to us this morning uh, against self-sufficiency. Now, we've had an interesting year as a church. We've seen a lot of personal spiritual growth. We've seen transition in our location and some of our ministries and and people who have come and gone. We've had plenty of spiritual warfare. How many know that was true last week? And uh, we've had challenges interpersonally and in marriages. But there's always been a continued sense that the Lord's at work. And that there are fresh avenues of ministry that God is opening up for us, especially now that we're downtown. And to me, this passage really speaks to that, uh, that that the great danger that we are going to face, the great curveball that the enemy is going to throw at us at this point as the Lord is doing work in our midst, what what he's going to go after is our, our pride and to pursue what we want instead of what the Lord ordains for our lives. That will be what he will constantly grind at, constantly push at, constantly try to emphasize. And it is incredibly subtle, and it expresses itself in countless ways, but we do know that it will always attack unity. First of all, it will attack the unity of our relationship individually with the Lord. Second, it will attack the unity of our relationships with each other, especially in marriages and in the family. And third, it will attack the unity of our relationship as a body of believers. So now that the Lord has moved us to a new location, now that he has his hand on our ministry, and we saw that evidence last week, decisions for Christ, kids coming up and saying, I want to know what it means to trust Christ, that, that we would have assumed maybe already knew because they've been in church, but very serious looks on their face saying, Can you explain it to me? What do I have to pray? What do I have to do? Because I want to understand what it means to give my life to Christ. And that's that's worthy of praise, isn't it? That that kids would ask that question. We need to have our hearts awakened now and vigilantly guard against pride and against personal self-sufficiency. So let's look at the text and see what the Lord has to tell us this morning. Matthew 14, let's start in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. 
When it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch, verse 25, of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took a hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Now, if we look at the context here in chapter 14, we see that this passage is preceded by sorrow and by success. The sorrow comes in the fact that Jesus had been in Nazareth, And the people there rejected him, his hometown. They did not believe. They did not want to yield to him. They they rejected him out of hand. And it says that Jesus chose not to do many miracles that he wanted to do there. That's a sermon in itself. Because they rejected him. The next thing that happens at the start of chapter 14 is that John the Baptist is beheaded. And we know that incident with with, uh, the king whose daughter danced and asked for anything she could have and The wife was angling to get rid of John the Baptist because she had been called out by him about her adultery. So John the Baptist is beheaded. So there's sorrow that precedes this section. And then we see what happens next is there is success. The people are gathered on the hillside and Jesus teaches them and there's nothing to eat. And we see that he multiplies the loaves and fishes and feeds 5,000. Right after that happens, Jesus sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee on their boat, and he says, I'm going to go up into the hills and pray. Now, what a reminder here of the importance of prayer, because if the Son of God needed that time to spend in the presence of the Lord, to fellowship and to spiritually recharge, then how much more do we need it? And he prioritized it. After a long day of ministry, after sadness that John the Baptist had been killed, the man he called the greatest man ever to be born of a woman, that that after all this sorrow and then this lack of faith by the disciples and then the feeding of the 5,000 and all the energy and all the power that had been used up, the teaching, the, the ministering to people, the people crowding around, the people grabbing at him, all of that, after that, you'd think you'd say, you know what, guys, row across the lake and I'm going to lay on the back and sleep. But he says, no, i got to recharge. You guys go ahead. You guys get your rest. I am going to go fellowship with the Father. Now, as he's doing that, we see in the text that the disciples quickly find themselves in a very bad situation. A storm comes across and sweeps the Sea of Galilee, and they're right out in the middle of it, and they're far from shore, and the text says they're getting battered by the wind. Now, the Sea of Galilee is usually a very placid lake. Rarely does it have large waves. It's usually very calm. If you uh, ride a boat on it, I got to ride a boat at one time on the Sea of Galilee, and, and it's very calm and very placid, very serene. It's a beautiful place. But it says here that this storm overwhelmed them. And these are experienced fishermen. They knew what they were doing. They had been out there before, but, but it's, it's beating them up. 
Matthew essentially says they're in trouble. And they're not only terrified by the storm, but now, look at the text, they're also terrified by the sight of Jesus walking across the water to them. Now, it's the fourth watch in maritime terms. That means it's 3 to 6 a.m. So let's assume that at the end of the day, let's say 6, 7, 8 o'clock, because they fed them dinner, that, that they go out on the boat. Normally, it's about probably a two-hour crossing if you're going to go width to width across the Sea of Galilee. And for experienced fishermen, wouldn't have taken them long. But, but instead of two hours, it essentially takes them seven to ten. And they're still not across yet. They're in the middle of the lake. And notice how, how it seems almost incidental um, that, that they're now in a storm because once Jesus shows up, everything kind of changes. What struck me as I studied this passage were a couple phrases that are here. And I want you to notice the first one because it's in verse 27. As Jesus approaches, as they see him, as they're frightened, as they say, it's a ghost, what's going on? And they're terrified and they're kind of hiding because it seems in the middle of all this, that there's some kind of apparition. We don't know what they're thinking, but, but at this point, they're so tired and so bleary-eyed and they've been fighting the storm and it's been a long day of ministry. So we can imagine three, three to six in the morning. How many are really sharp at three to six in the morning? No, not really, right? So at 3 to 6 in the morning, they're fighting the storm for 6, 7 hours. They're exhausted. The waves are rolling. You're seeing all kinds of junk. And here you look out. What is that? There's a man out there. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. No, I'm telling you, there's a guy. Look at the waves. There's a guy out there. Wait a second. That's Jesus. And it's fascinating to me what Jesus says to them. The first two words out of his mouth are, take courage. Not, hey guys, it's me, it's all right, I'm out here, saw you fighting the wind, was up on the hills, decided to come down and help you. It, it's okay, everything's going to be fine, I'm going to stop the storm. Not, hey guys, you don't know what you're doing, row against the wind, head toward Capernaum, you can make port, I'll meet you there. Not, not hey, what are you so afraid of? I'm here, and you're experienced fisherman, what's the problem? Instead, he says, look at it, it's in verse 27. He says, take courage. The phrase in the Greek means to be of good courage and be of good cheer. Now, that word stuck out to me. Be of good cheer? We're in the middle of a storm. We are fighting the wind. The boat is rocking. Everybody's throwing up off the side of the deck. It's horrible. And you're telling us to be courageous and to be happy? You know, there's a very deep, and I would even say sometimes confounding spiritual principle here. And I think it's very important for us to see and understand and accept this morning. And that is that the Lord doesn't always take the storm away, even when we pray that way. The Lord does not always take the storm away. Sometimes he wants us to weather it. And he wants us to learn what it means not only to take courage. Here's the hard part. But to be of good cheer in our dependence on him. In other words, find strength in the middle of the storm 
because right now the storm is not subsiding. And I'm telling you, as you go through it, count it all joy. Now that's a hard word for us. And we have to look at it and say bitterness and resentment are not contentment. The storm eventually will go away. Jesus eventually will remove it. But in the meantime, even if I don't remove it, I want you to understand what it means to depend on me and not just to depend grudgingly or with a bad attitude because that's not really dependence. I want you to learn what it means to depend on me and to find courage and to be of good cheer. It would have taken no effort on Jesus' part to immediately stop the storm. We see a couple verses later that he did it. But he is teaching them and he's teaching us the need to be bold in our faith and to be fearless at all times, even in the midst of crisis. Now, how do we do that? We do that, look at the text, because we always find greater courage in the presence of the Lord. That's the only explanation I can come up with for why Peter goes from being in danger and being terrified by his circumstances to asking, can I jump out of the boat? How do you go from fighting the storm and, and the sails are lashing and the wind's coming in and the waves are rolling and, and you're terrified and you don't know what to do and you're fighting six, seven, eight hours. How do you go from that almost, almost in an instant textually and how do you go from that saying, hey, can I jump out of the boat and walk on the water? That'll be great. The only explanation is that the presence of the Lord was there. Because you got to remember, there are two huge obstacles for this being easy. The first one is that there were still huge swells. Things have not calmed down. When Jesus shows up, the storm doesn't subside, and Peter says, okay, now, Lord, I'm ready to walk on the water. If you look at most of the art or drawings or pictures, and I did for a while, of, of this passage, the depictions of this in terms of art, most of what you will see is the water is pretty calm. At, at maybe there's a little chop in the wave, maybe a little bit, but for the most part, everything's steady. That is not what's happening here. These are giant swells. The boat is going up and down like a cruise I was on once where we were in the Bahamas and we hit a tropical storm and I would look out the port window and I would see sky and then we would see a big wave. And then sky. This is a cruise line. This is not a little boat. You're already kind of seasick, right? Like, Don't talk about sky and sea anymore. Well, only time I've ever gotten seasick. It was horrible. That's what they're experiencing. Huge swells. There's no detail between verse 27 and 28 that things stopped. In fact, verse 30 and 32 tell us that it hadn't yet. Which means that Peter not only wants to try to walk on water, which has never been done by somebody who is not from heaven, but he also wants to try to walk on water at the most difficult time possible. Now, here's what we need to appreciate about the Apostle Peter and model in our lives. Look at it. Peter's the only one who believes it's possible. No one else expresses faith. No one else says, hey, me too. 
Hey, Thomas, come on, you and me, buddy. Let's go. Let's walk arm in arm. We'll go out to Jesus. It'll be great. Hey, John, come on over here. Nathaniel, come on. Hey, let's go. Let's get a whole team of guys. Forget the boat. Jesus got the boat. Let's all walk the 12 of us out to Jesus. No one else has the conviction. No one else has the courage. No one else expresses faith or joy or anything that's stretching their dependence on the Lord. And that's usually the case with Peter. He's Mr. Impulsive, right? And here it's with good reason, because he genuinely loves the Lord and trusts in him. So he's the only one, second, that has the courage to actually get out of the boat. Faith is bold enough to act on conviction. Faith is not expressed, this is James's point, faith is not expressed without acting on your conviction. You could say, well, I trust God, but when crisis comes and you don't trust, that's not really faith. Faith acts on its conviction. It doesn't hold back. It doesn't wait for the safe route. It doesn't wait for for what's tangible and what's easy to understand because that contradicts the Bible's definition of faith, which is it's the things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. There's nothing sure about this other than the fact that Jesus is there. So the fact that Peter jumps out, the fact that Peter believes is highly commendable. There's no question that of all the disciples, Peter probably had the most guts. So we would conclude, and this is what I've always concluded about this text, that that Peter has faith when no one else does. And isn't it great? And, and we can pray. No, wait a second. Does he? Is he really acting on faith? Because when we examine Matthew's details very closely, we have to ask if there is a sense that this is self-motivated. Now, why would we ask that? Why would we be skeptical at this point? Well, look back at the text in verse 28, because Peter says five words here that are a little troublesome. He says, as he prepares to say, can I come out there? Lord, if it is you. Now, that is the condition that Peter puts on getting out of the boat, which would seem natural on face value, because if it's not Jesus, getting out of the boat's going to be a disaster. But there's something very subtle here, and, 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 and there's something here that we need to not miss, because those five words that Peter says reveal a, a recalcitrant, self-sufficient spirit that is highly dangerous. It would seem that he's innocent and adventuresome and eager and, and kind of, you know, good old Peter, he's the first one out of the boat, isn't that great? And he's jumping out there and he's so full of joy. Lord, I want to come out and walk with you. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. I'm gonna... Really pay attention to the text here. Because the Spirit tells us that something else is going on. Peter doesn't say, Lord, I'm so glad it's you. This is so cool. Hey, Jesus, can I come out and walk? Hey, can, can I, can I try it? Listen, these guys are scared, but, but you know me, Mr. Impulsive, I'm ready. Lord, can I come out there? Would, would that, would you allow that? That is not what he says in the text. Instead, he demands that Jesus prove himself, even though Jesus has already identified himself and already given his word that he's near and that there's no need to be afraid. 
But Peter follows it up by saying what? Lord, if it is you. And why would he say that? And then he says, I want you to prove it. I want evidence that that this is you. And how you're going to prove it to me is by commanding me to come out and be with you. Now that reads a lot differently, doesn't it? This is not a desire to be closer to the Lord. It's not a desire to experience the power of God firsthand. It is a challenge and a test of God's goodness. It's why Jesus says in a few verses, you had little faith. This is a very dangerous position to take because it places ourself above the Lord. And all throughout the Bible, there is a plethora of evidence that it is never good to test the Lord. In fact, there are five significant passages. We won't turn to them. Let me just give you the references and you can look at them later. But there are five significant passages where we're warned about testing the Lord. Exodus 17, when Israel's in the wilderness of sin and they complain and grumble that they didn't have water and they demand it from Moses and the Lord. God says, you tested me. Deuteronomy 6 when Moses reminded the next generation of that incident at Rephidim, and he warns them as they come toward the promised land, he says, never again question whether the Lord is with you. In Isaiah 7, where King Ahaz refuses a sign, he says, Lord, I'm not going to seek a sign from you about this battle. I am just going to trust you and your word instead of looking for an artificial assurance that you're going to help us. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus rebukes the devil during the temptation, and he tells him to stop challenging the authority of God and stop testing the Lord. And in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Lord, and they act sincere in their sacrificial giving, when actually they're lying and misrepresenting themselves in the presence of the Lord, God strikes them dead in the presence of the church and says, you tested me. It is never a good thing to test the Lord. And in each of those situations, the temptation was to act in defiance to the word of the Lord and to promote self. Now, the fact that that's how we define it leads me to really wonder, when I look back at this passage, whether Peter's motive is pure because his question reveals a reticence and a resistance to trust God's word. And the way he asks the question at least leaves the possibility that this is about him in some way. Now, whatever's in Peter's heart, whether he actually is trusting and has joy, or there's an inclination to test the Lord and show off a little bit, Jesus knows exactly what's going on, and he allows Peter to come out to the water. And I want you to notice the simplicity of what Jesus says in verse 29, when Peter says, hey, to prove it's you, bring me out there. And Jesus says one word in the text. He says, come. Now, again, try to think about the possibilities of what he could have said. Sure, Peter, I'll prove it to you you faithless wonder, why don't you come out here and I'll show you that it's really me? Or why would you question my word? I just said it's me. 
Or how dare you have the audacity to think that you can come out and walk on the water like the Son of God. He, he doesn't even say, Peter, be careful. It's a little dangerous out here. He just says, come. Now, he knows what's in Peter's heart, and he knows the end result. And I believe he lets Peter come out and fail the way he does to show the absolute danger of self-sufficiency. And the concept is here because of what happens in verse 30. Look back at verse 30. Seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Try to, try to picture the scene now. You may need to close your eyes. The boat is going up and down and the waves are crashing and the wind is strong and contrary. And, and Peter says this and the Lord says, come on. And Peter starts to, to climb out of the rocking boat. And I'm trying to imagine what the other disciples are thinking at this point because the text doesn't record a single word. And I, I, I just got the picture yesterday that they're going... And here is Peter, trying trying hard, climb out of the boat. And there's that moment where his weight shifts from kind of hanging on to the boat to actually putting his feet, putting his weight on the water. And as he does that, and he's still holding on, praying that he's not going to sink, as he's doing this and the boat's rocking, he realizes that his feet are actually on top of the water and he's not sinking at all. What must that moment have been like? And then he takes one hand off and he kind of holds on and he's kind of testing it out and looking with amazement. The other disciples are still... And, and, he, and he decides, at some point, he decides, I'm going to let go. And he stands there and the waves are rocking and he takes the first step and he starts to go toward Jesus and he keeps going and everything's wonderful. But Matthew says in verse 30, there, there's something that happens between verse 29 and verse 30, where Peter loses focus on who was giving him the power to do this. Because it says in verse 30, look at it, seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. In that moment, Peter took his eyes off the Lord and started to look at his circumstances. And when that is the case, we stop experiencing the power and sufficiency of the Lord because we have fallen into self-sufficiency. Now, I'm sure Peter could have given a hundred reasons why he fell in. Well, the storm, come on, it was furious. And the waves were rocking. And, and by the way, no normal person's ever done this before. At least I was out there. But I'm sure if Peter walked down the aisle today and we said, can you explain what's happening here? The only answer he would give would be, church, I took my eyes off the Lord. Yes, the waves were strong. And yes, the wind was strong. And yes, I didn't know what I was doing because I had never walked on water before. But let me tell you, what happened was, I stopped finding my direction and my strength from the Lord and I looked at what was contrary to the Lord and it caused me to fall. Look back at verse 24 for a second because there's a very important word there that the Spirit includes. He says, the wind was contrary. What an important word. When you're on a boat, 
When the wind is contrary, it means that it's coming from the opposite direction that you need it to, and it's adverse and unfavorable. In Peter's case, what was contrary is that he was more concerned about the wind than confident in the one who controls the wind. And even though he's walking toward the Lord, he stops acting like uh, he, he starts acting in a way that is opposite of what the Lord wanted because instead of keeping his eyes focused on the author and finisher of our faith, he started to go, uh-oh. Boy, this wind really is strong. And these waves are huge. What in the world am I doing? And in that moment, he started to sink. Isn't it fascinating? Don't you love the text? Don't you love the Bible? I just love the Bible. It says in verse 30, but seeing the wind. Was the wind new? What, was, was everything calm and all of a sudden a gust of wind rose up? Oh, there's wind. No, the wind had been there all along. For the last six or seven hours, they had been battling the wind. That's why they're there in the first place. So it wasn't like all of a sudden it was like, hey, it's windy out here. But instead of being preoccupied with the Lord as he walked toward him, he became preoccupied with the wind and he lost his confidence and his direction and his footing. This is what happens, church, when we stop looking to the Lord and start trying to do it on our own. And if we think that we can walk around his word and walk around his leading and walk around his direction, we are sadly mistaken. Now, we can do that for a bunch of reasons, but the most common are three. Either we don't care about the Lord and what he wants us to do, or we don't trust the Lord enough to follow his leading, or we're too full of self. But when we take our eyes off the Lord, we are saying, Lord, I don't want you to guide me. I don't want you to lead me. I don't want to trust in you. I want to do what I want to do. And let me tell you this morning, that will always fail. That will always fail. Self-sufficiency has no long-term staying power because there's always going to be another giant wind or a huge wave or our own fear or our own security that causes us to sink. But listen, here's the good news. If we are seeking the Lord, he will never, ever, ever lead us in a way that is contrary to his word or dishonoring to his name. He will never tell us to do something that is wrong or sinful, and he will never fail us or forsake us. He will always lead us in the right way. Everybody say amen. Always. He will always lead us right. But when we stop trusting in him and we become full of self, he will not do that anymore. He will not be mocked. He will not be ridiculed. He will not be made to look like a fool. He will simply take his hand off and say, fine, you want to do your own thing? Do your own thing, but I'm not going to bless it. You want to act contrary to my word? I'm not going to bless it. But when we do, oh, it's so wonderful. When we trust in him, he puts his hand on us and he blesses us. And he allows us to experience the constant, and I don't use this word often, you know me. He allows us to experience the constant miracle of his provision. God's provision 
is a miracle. We don't deserve it. It is a miracle that God loves us and cares for us. And God says, sometimes I'm not being weird here or melodramatic or mystical. I'm just telling you, sometimes those miracles and those experiences are amazing beyond our comprehension. When Peter left that dock that night, he had no idea that by evening he'd be walking on water. He got in the boat, time to go across. Jesus told us to do that. He's going to pray. We probably should pray, but you know, I'm really tired. Let's get to the other side. We'll meet him. We'll prepare it for him. It'll be great. He'll love that. And they get out in the middle and there's a storm and nothing could have prepared him to think. By four o'clock in the morning, I'm on the waves. I'm walking. It's going to be incredible. Listen, we can't walk on water. Peter couldn't walk on water. But in that moment, God gave him ability to do something he'd never done before. And that was only possible through the power of the Lord. And God is generous with his power. This passage shows the radical possibility of faith. That when we have courageous faith and we keep our eyes on the Lord, we can experience his work in our lives in amazing ways. What seems impossible, what doesn't seem fixable, what cannot be healed in our mind, what cannot get better in our mind, just anything that we say, it's not going to happen. The Lord Jesus Christ can heal that. And we have to trust that he can do anything in our lives because nothing is impossible with the Lord. We either believe that or we don't. And if we don't believe it, stop trusting in Him. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. How do I know that? I know that because my life is redeemed. That was impossible. I can't be saved. I can't do anything on my own. There's no good works I can accomplish where God finally says, you did it, you got enough, you get an A, come on into heaven. I'm an F student. And God says, nothing's impossible with me. I'm going to send my son and he's going to die for your sins and he's going to rise again and he's going to transform you when you trust in him. Road, you got problems in your life. Church, you got problems in your life. You got issues that you think can't be resolved and God can't heal at your, your wit's end. No, don't believe that lie from the enemy. God can heal anything. He can do anything and when it's obvious he's at work in the middle of the storm, he says, I still want you to have strong faith. Now let's finish. Let's look at the mercy of the Lord. Peter starts to go into the water. Why did I close my text? I'm still studying it. Three things, real quick. Two minutes. First, notice the patience and the mercy of the Lord. The patience and mercy of the Lord. He already knew the end result. He allows Peter's experiment to teach him and the disciples and us the lure of self-sufficiency and the danger of spiritual distraction, but he is not cruel or indifferent in any way. There's a gentleness and a love here as he says, Peter, I'm going to show you as you fail what you got wrong, but I'm going to teach you. Second, would you see that the sinking was slow? Boy, this really struck me this week. Matthew writes that he began to speak, to sink. Now, if you're standing on water and you start to sink, how quick is that process going to be? It's not going to be 
to try it later, dive into a pool. Try to, try to stand on water as you jump in. See how quick it works. But the text says it wasn't instant. Even with the turbulent undulation of the waves, we get the sense that it is slow motion. He begins to go in and he has enough time to cry out, Lord, save me. What a great prayer that is. Every person at some point in life needs to say, Lord, save me. I'm sinking. I'm stuck. There's no hope. I'm going in that water and eternally I am going to die. Lord, save me. Peter slowly sinks in. And here's the great third truth and we're done. The Lord is always there ready to save. Oh, I love that adverb in verse 31. It's repeated earlier in the passage. It says, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. What a picture, a beautiful picture of eternal salvation. That when we're trying to do it on our own by good works and by being a good person and by saying we can do this as we start to sink and fall short of the Lord. That as we cry out to him and say, Lord, I can't do it. That immediately God says, I got you. Salvation is never delayed when somebody says, I trust you, Lord. I believe in Christ. I get it. I am a sinner. I confess it. I don't want to live this way anymore. As kids did this week in that room right there. They said, I don't want to do this anymore. They said, let me tell you what it is to be saved. And in an instant, their life changed for eternity. Immediately, he reaches out. And he says, Peter, I've got you. And they walked back to the boat. And Peter's life was never the same. Listen, we're all guilty of self-sufficiency. And the Lord wants to break us of it because it hinders us from drawing close to Him and knowing His mercy and His power and His sufficiency in our lives. God's mercy is never ending. It will change your life. And He will always, always, always be sufficient. Let's close our eyes. And as we sit here just in quiet for a moment, I know it's warm. But I have to ask you one more question. Everybody just be still for a moment. Are you walking in your life in a way that is contrary to him? Are you walking toward him in faith? Are you looking at the waves and the wind? Proud of yourself? Thinking you can do it on your own? We have all been there. Or are you saying, no, the only way I can do this is with Jesus' help? This is a great challenge the Spirit of God's given to us this morning. To not walk contrary. To not do what's displeasing to him for the sake of ourselves. Jesus told us, forget yourselves. Die to yourselves. Self's not going to get you anywhere. I pray this morning that we will turn from that. If that exists in our lives, and it exists in every one of our lives. It exists in my life. 
that we will turn from that and experience the great blessing and the hand of God on our lives, that he would be pleased with us and that we would walk worthy of him, whether it's on the shoreline or out on the water, that we would walk worthy. Lord, we ask you this morning to help us. Too often we look at the wind and the waves and too often we get full of self and say, I want to do it my way. And we justify it and it seems right to us. But Lord, we don't have the wisdom to know that it's wrong. So I pray you'd work in my life this morning. I pray you'd work in the lives of each person that is here. That we would turn away from self. And we would look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who's never failed us, never forsaken us, never been indifferent, never been slow to help, always ready. Lord, what a miracle that is that you'd be willing to do that. Work in our lives this morning, I pray. Change us, Lord. Break us of self-sufficiency. Break us of anything that is contrary to you. And may our hearts be humbled and broken so that you can work in a powerful way in our lives. We thank you for being near us. We thank you for your holy presence. We thank you for your spirit who indwells us and guides us. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning that has never received you and never turned from their sin and trusted in you, I pray today's the day of awakening. That they would not leave this place without talking to one of us and saying like those kids did this week, I want to know what it means. Tell me. Because I'm ready. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you for your goodness to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.